Wallawani, welcome. My name's Ian Campbell from Palliative Care Australia on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people in Chile, Canberra. Welcome to Thursdays at Three, our regular series of conversations with people living and working at the end of life. Today, we meet Professor David Currow, who you might already know based on his long career in cancer care and research and palliative care. Welcome, David. How are you going? Great to be here. How are you, Ian? I'm very well. Looking forward to our conversation. David, let me fill in some of the gaps around that introduction. You're currently the Deputy Vice-Chancellor at the University of Wollongong in New South Wales. You're the former Chief Cancer Officer for New South Wales. You're also the former Chief Executive Officer for the Cancer Institute of New South Wales. Before that, David was the Foundation Chief Executive Officer of Cancer Australia, the Australian Government's Cancer Control Agency. David is also a previous president of Palliative Care Australia, and in 2015, David received the Tom Reeve National Award for Outstanding Contribution to Cancer Care. David is also a co-founder of the Australian National Palliative Care Outcomes Collaboration, a national data set that seeks quality improvements in palliative care. And this September, David will be one of our presenters at the Oceanic Palliative Care Conference in Sydney. Thanks again for your time today, David. Let's dive straight into your presentation at OPCC before we head down all the various rabbit holes of your career and your wisdom. Your presentation at OPCC this September in Sydney is titled The Future of Palliative Care in the Care Economy. The Albanese government has been very focused on the potential of the, the care economy. Give us the backstory. What are we talking about with the care economy and the government's focus? Well, uh, let's take it in two parts, if we may. Firstly, uh, the future of palliative care uh, needs to be considered in the context of the communities in which we work, uh, the systems that fund us, uh, and importantly, uh, the, the changes in health around us. And so care uh, is a, a, an incredibly dynamic thing. We think of it as quite static, but in fact, it's not. And we know that as we look to the future, palliative care is going to have to become very agile at changing uh, the way it provides care uh, in uh, parallel with lots of other changes across the social and health systems. In terms of the care economy, it's clear that uh, uh, Australia is in a, a challenging position where our net needs for both professional and uh, uh, and other carers uh, is not being met uh, within our boundaries. And we have been a net importer uh, of uh, nursing staff and medical staff now for more than 20 years. But as we start to see the change in demographics of uh, the next couple of generations who will face uh, life-limiting illnesses in larger numbers, we're also running out of family and friends as caregivers. Yeah. And how we prepare for that is uh, an enormous challenge. And it's a challenge around the world, but uh, we've got to start facing it. We've got to start thinking about how we are going to provide care in a far smarter way. David, you talk about palliative care needing to be agile, but that's a real challenge to perhaps the community's perception of palliative care and perhaps health professionals' palliative care. Often palliative care is seen as one thing and one thing only. It's about death and dying. But you're wanting to, I guess, create a more agile approach to palliative care. 
Look, uh, there are many services that are incredibly agile already, and they're the services that are really meeting people's more complex needs. Uh, think about the, the, the last few years. There's no doubt that, uh, for example, uh, bridge to therapy uh, interventions such as left ventricular uh, assist devices uh, were seen as uh, a bridge, uh, understandably, to uh, heart transplant. But they're now a destination therapy. That is that there are people who will never be on the transplant list who may well benefit from left ventricular assist devices. That means the way that person lives and the way that person dies has changed fundamentally. It means that our agility as service providers to meet those needs uh, is, is there and is dynamic. So uh, although the public perception is about butterflies and doves and handholding, uh, the reality is every advance, uh, particularly in chronic complex disease or chronic progressive disease, asks palliative care to, to reflect and think, how does that mean we need to change what we do? Is that a mind shift for people currently working in palliative care, as well as that mind shift for the community and perhaps the wider health sector? What's the what's the mind shift that needs to happen within the palliative care sector itself? That mind shift has been happening for 40 years. Um, sadly, I can remember places where, for example, uh, there was no way that a blood transfusion would be offered to someone who was labelled palliative, uh, despite the fact that they that may improve their symptom control. It may actually uh, get them home again comfortably uh, for quite long periods of time. So palliative care started to adjust to this a, a long time ago. It's just that the speed of it is now exponential. Uh, and uh, the, the number of interventions, uh, we've mentioned people with chronic heart failure, think of so many people now uh, with cancer where biological therapies with much, much lower levels of toxicity are being offered later uh, into the course of the illness mm -hmm. and, and often quite understandably, therefore, uh, delaying referral to palliative care. So it, it becomes uh, a, a an ongoing uh, and ever-present challenge for us. The, the system in which care is delivered, you know, uh, although COVID accelerated telehealth, there are palliative care studies from Australia a decade ago showing that giving uh, a family an iPad, subscribing to the internet for them, and connecting them to their palliative care team through that uh, actually saved a huge amount of angst, improved quality of life, and really made a difference. And yet, we weren't agile enough to really take that on board. We've got to we've got to learn how we can be more responsive. What is it that's that's driving that take up now? You think that that change? You, you talk about the report from ten years ago that points to the the advantages around telehealth, but it's only now that it's really got a head of steam up. Is it? Is it economics? Is it is it some sort of societal impact? What is it that's driving that need to change now? Well, look, uh, COVID took us uh, forward uh, a decade in about uh, four weeks. Um, <laughs> it really did. You know, people have been talking about this for 20 years and uh, COVID was the catalyst that we needed to actually make that change in high income countries around the world. 
Uh, it happened quickly and uh, expectations therefore have been changed. It's really good. Uh, suddenly the community expectations are really clear. We expect that good healthcare will include face-to-face -face when it's necessary, but the opportunity to uh, actually uh, contact and, uh, uh, and access a range of health professionals uh, by telehealth, either from our own home or uh, from our family physician's um, rooms. Uh, the expectations of the community have also changed regarding palliative care. And we've got the challenge of the baby boomers now um, as our predominant uh, population. I'm not sure that we've yet come to terms with uh, their needs, their desires, their beliefs, and their wishes as they face life-limiting illnesses. David, I'm being perhaps a bit harsh and sceptical here, but I'm assuming if, if the government is interested in a care economy, and indeed they are, they're developing a, a care economy strategy at the moment, there must be a payoff in terms of the economy, saving money, doing things better and more efficiently. Is there an economic dividend to come with a care economy and a more agile uh, palliative care sector? There's value to come from a care economy. Whether there are savings or not, I think is a, 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 a subservient question, but there is value. And there is no doubt that uh, uh, as we've seen from uh, the Aged Care Royal Commission, uh, as a community, we have not invested in those who are most, most vulnerable. We have not invested in adequate uh, uh, levels of staffing or seniority of staffing, qualifications of staffing. And uh, as a community, uh, it held a mirror up to us all. Uh, so there is absolute value. Uh, I believe there will be um, a better focus of the resources that we have. Uh, people will spend less time in the emergency department unnecessarily. And that also frees up the emergency department for the people who most need it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are advantages at, at every turn if we get this right. Mm -hmm. David, moving on and, and perhaps going back to the, the very beginning, uh, where does your passion for, for cancer and palliative care come from? For a lot of people working in the sector, there's often a, a personal story, a personal connection that, that drives their work. Where does your passion come from? Look, we're all looking for the thunderbolt that was the, uh, the beginning of uh, this wonderful journey. Um, mine was very simple. Uh, I happened to be rotated through palliative care as a junior doctor mm -hmm. and loved it. Uh, it was sensible. It had clear goals for, for the person and the ability to, to sit down and say to someone, in the time that you have left, what's important to you and how can I help you achieve that is really at the heart of it. It is that simple. And we have a, an amazing armamentarium of resources to help people achieve those goals. But if we can have that conversation with people in a timely way, uh, we have contributed not only to their well-being and health, but those of their, uh, their families. Uh, by contrast, the angriest people I ever see are people who feel that the knowledge that time was limited has been withheld from them, that they would have made different choices under these circumstances had they known. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that we all get is time. We don't know how much, but we all get it. Mm 
And to feel that days, weeks, months, or years have been stolen from us uh, is, um, is truly daunting. So in that, uh, we have a very real challenge. Yeah, great inspiration to be able to provide that to, to people, that comfort for people, that, that extra time for people. Um, seems to be that, that, that burns brightly for you. Yeah, look, and it, it, it may not be extra time, but it may be that w because of what we do, they have more time as a person uh, living independently. Mm -hmm. None of us is looking forward to the first time we have to ask someone to help us uh, bathe or, or toilet. Um, and particularly when that first time will also be uh, the time every time after that. So, you know, helping people to function as, as well as possible um, and get good symptom control because the symptom control is not an end in itself in palliative care. I think, again, there are lots of perceptions across the community that symptom control is all that it's about. Yeah. Symptom control is a means to an end. And the end are those other things that people want to do, the legacy <laughs> issues, the conversations with families, making sure their pets are going to be cared for, making sure their will's in order, or going on that trip that they've never, never been. It's amazing, uh, you know, when I talk to, uh, to medical students and we talk about, you know, what would you do if you weren't going to see the end of, uh, uh, of the next cricket season, uh, Southern Hemisphere. Um, and, you know, every time someone puts their hand up and goes, I'd go skydiving. And you go, why are you going to wait till then? <laughs> yeah. Like, seriously, yeah. um, live now. And... Um, we've all got lessons to learn from, uh, from the people for whom we've cared. Uh, and uh, it's a great opportunity to uh, reflect that perhaps we're not great students. David, keen to take you back to your student days, your days as a, as a young doctor, buried there in your, your grey matter. What, what are the things or who are the people that, that helped you, that inspired your palliative care practice? Often young doctors and young nurses are reluctant to get into palliative care. What is it or who is it that got you across the line? Uh, look, it didn't need anyone to get me across the line, but my mentor, my greatest mentor by far, uh, was Michael Barbato. No doubt about it. Uh, an extraordinary human being, an extraordinary physician uh, and an extraordinary mentor. Uh, someone who, whose focus on the person and their family was unwavering uh, and whose generosity of spirit uh, was unparalleled. Um, Michael still continues to give to the community his work, his insights, uh, and uh, his humanity are, uh, are lessons to us all. So I've, I was very fortunate to spend time uh, with him and... Uh, I look back on those days as uh, genuinely halcyon days, uh, given the uh, opportunity to work alongside him and work under him uh, in that time. David, just to tease out your uh, work with cancer uh, just a little bit. Um, cancer is often a, a confronting diagnosis for people, but, but more and more, there seems to be hope. In 2023, there seems to be hope that is also delivered as part of a, a cancer diagnosis. Look, uh, cancer has changed dramatically. And uh, if we take Australian data, um, uh, fewer than one in two people diagnosed in the, the early 1980s would uh, see five years. Uh, that's now uh, seven out of 10 people. 
That's a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And much of that uh, is uh, we've got far smarter, uh, but we've also realized, and I think particularly my time at the Cancer Institute, was making sure that wherever people hit the system, they got to the right place. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if I had uh, a dollar for everyone who phoned me that uh, knew me and said, you know, great aunt Maud has just been diagnosed with cancer X, where should she go to get the best outcomes? People shouldn't need to make those phone calls. Uh, the system should look after people and ensure that that's exactly what happens every time. We're not mm-hmm. there yet. Uh, but uh, we saw uh, a massive decline, for example, in early post-operative mortality and morbidity in people who had had surgery with curative intent. Now, uh, that was a fantastic outcome because we saw, even in that that time period, uh, the improvement in survival as a direct consequence of that. Mm-hmm. Ensuring people are are given the options to consider uh, therapies that may positively uh, affect their life expectancy uh, is is critical to uh, a partnership between patient and clinician. David, you're one of the co-founders of the Australian National Palliative Care Outcomes Collaborative, which collects data on the delivery of of palliative care with the view of of driving quality improvements. What have been some of the learnings to to come from that data so far? The most important learning from the collaboration uh, is that uh, um, people uh, across palliative care across the country are now routinely measuring their performance. Um, We assume as clinicians, we get out of bed on a Monday morning to do a great job and to make a difference for people. And our challenge is that we weren't measuring that in any systematic way anywhere in the world uh, when this collaboration came together. Uh, That's now ingrained into practice and it allows us all to reflect on what we're doing and areas where we may be able to improve. That is the fundamental uh, criterion in my book for being a professional. That self-reflection and the honest reflection that there are things that could improve, things that are being done well, but things that could improve uh, underpins that firmly. Are there any messages for government in that data in terms of perhaps improving access to palliative care? What, what should government be reading into the, the data that the collaborative is collecting? As, as we work uh, alongside government, as we uh, work to think about the next 10 or 20 years with government, uh, the data are helpful, but I think the far more helpful issues are really uh, the demography of the population uh, that we will see in the next 20 years because it is different. And we need to think fundamentally about how we are going to provide that care in the community, remembering that the vast majority of care at the end of life is provided by friends and family in the community. Our role is going to be to support that more actively uh, in a, a, a generation that has not seen death in the same way that uh, uh, the two generations ahead of it uh, have seen and experienced it. David, often the, this this 
bubble of baby boomers that we've heard about for, for decades now moving through the health system is seen as a problem, is seen as, a, as an issue. And I guess th there are certainly issues and challenges around that. But hearing you talk about where our healthcare system needs to go to, it's a very positive place. Uh, these baby boomers are driving us to, to, to be better. This is, this is going to be uh, a silent revolution for much improved care, for much improved responsiveness, for providing a service rather than telling people the care they're going to get, mm. for listening to people and working hard to really understand their needs uh, rather than assuming that you and I know what those needs will be. Back to OPCC, where we started the Oceanic Palliative Care Conference this September in Sydney. As I mentioned before, you're one of our presenters. What are you looking forward to? You've been to OPCC before. What do you get out of these experiences? What are you looking forward to? Look, I, I think the great opportunity here in a peri-COVID world is actually to catch up with a few people that I haven't <laughs> seen for quite some time. And, uh, you know, you see them on Zoom and you think, geez, COVID's been kind to them or occasionally COVID's been very unkind to them. Um, and then there are the people you've never met face to face. And that all depends on where their camera is. Uh, you know, if their camera's up here uh, and uh, you think, geez, they're short and uh, they're six foot eight. And if their camera's down here looking up, you think, my God, they're tall and they're five foot two. Um, so, you know, it'll be putting names to faces, uh, catching up with colleagues from uh, around the region, uh, which is always exciting, always stimulates great conversations and about 10 extra research questions. Um, to hear people's <laughs> progress prof professionally and personally is always wonderfully gratifying. Uh, and to hear of the problems out there that uh, all of us need to own and address, um, they're all good things. David, lovely to spend this time with you and just get a splinter of your, your work and wisdom. Of course, we'll get more at OPCC this September in Sydney. Thank you so much for your time. Look forward to seeing you there. Have a great day. Professor David Currow from the University of Wollongong. As we've mentioned, you'll see him again at the Oceanic Palliative Care Conference this September in Sydney. Registrations are now open and I'll include a link in the show notes. And thanks to you for tuning in to Thursdays at three, whether that's via PCA socials or Spotify and engaging with matters of life and death. You'll find more advice, tools and support at the Palliative Care Australia website, where you can also make a donation to support our work. See you next Thursday. Ta-da.